0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Pilgrimage is undergoing a revival across Europe, but why are so many non-religious people drawn to spiritual journeys? Rupert Sheldrake, author of Ways to Go Beyond, asks why we are attracted to holy
1: places. If you enjoy today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. There's been a tremendous revival of pilgrimage in recent years in Europe. I and mean, there's always been lots of pilgrimages to Mecca, um, to, in India, uh, in Iran. There are huge pilgrimages with millions of people walking from one shrine to another. But in Europe, which is a very secular part of the world, um, pilgrimage more or less died out in the 20th century. There were still local pilgrimages in Catholic countries, but um, as a huge phenomenon, uh, which it is in many parts of the world, it didn't really exist in, in the way it used to in the Middle Ages. But the revival has been dramatic In um, 1987, when the route to Santiago de Compostela was reopened with places for pilgrims to stay, refugios, and um, the infrastructure for walking there, um, 1,000 people walked there in 1987. It was soon after it had been reestablished. Last year, 2019, 330,000 people walked to Santiago de Compostela. Some also went by bicycle and some went on horseback. Um, so there's been this tremendous growth. And here in Britain, um, the British Pilgrimage Trust is reopening the old way from Southampton or Winchester to Canterbury in 19 days, walking over the South Downs and through extraordinarily beautiful scenery. And this year, um, the British Pilgrimage Trust launched 42 new one-day pilgrimage routes uh, to every one of the cathedrals in England. When I say new, I mean recent, uh, recently reopened. I mean these are ancient sites of pilgrimage, um, but they've been re-established and now you can walk there um, and get uh, do a five or six mile walk uh, on a short pilgrimage. This is actually a really nice way of doing a pilgrimage. I myself uh, do one of these one-day pilgrimages every year. Um, I have a teenage godson and when he was 14 I couldn't think what to give him. I don't give stuff anymore, I give experiences and so because I was interested in pilgrimage I offered him um, a present, a birthday present in June when his birthday is, of walking together on a pilgrimage to Canterbury through the fields on footpaths, through meadows, uh, through woods and orchards um, to Canterbury Cathedral. I didn't know whether he'd want to do that or not, but he loved the idea and uh, we had a most wonderful day. Um, We arrived at the cathedral, we lit candles at the shrine of St. Thomas Becket, We had a cream tea and we went to Choral Evensong, this beautiful sung service that happens every day in the English cathedrals. You don't have to be a paid up practicing Christian to go to this, it's open to everyone and indeed, Uh, The British Pilgrimage Trust, when it leads guided pilgrimages, has as one of its slogans, bring your own beliefs. The people going on these pilgrimages um, are certainly not all totally devout Christians or members of other religions. Uh, A lot of people are agnostic or spiritual but not religious. And I think it's something that for many people is a physical expression of a spiritual quest. If you're on a spiritual journey, uh, then actually making it real by walking to a holy place is a very, very good way of of doing it. So there's a wide range of choice, and these include pilgrimages to the sources of rivers, to ancient trees and holy wells, uh, to pre-Christian holy places, and of course also to great Christian holy places like medieval churches, ruined monasteries, Um, and cathedrals. The basis of pilgrimage, I think, is very deep archetypal. I think that's one reason it's taking off so much in in modern Europe. Um, The deep archetype, I think, comes from the fact that our ancestors were hunter-gatherers. Hunter-gatherers can't just stay in one place. So Animals don't come to them to be hunted and fruit and nuts and and roots and so on don't just drop into their laps, they have to go around the landscape in accordance with the changing seasons. As they do so they go to places of significance with stories um, and those are the kind of primal ancestral holy places they visit. In Australia the Australian uh, Aborigines sing the stories of these places on their journey in what are called song lines. Um, They tell the story, they give meaning to the journey and the places, and they have a history. Now, I think when the Neolithic revolution occurred and people settled down in particular places, then they still had this urge to go together at sacred places. Stonehenge, for example, here in England was not, at the centre of a city, like temples were in Sumeria and Babylonia and Egypt. Um, It wasn't in in, in an urban-type setting. Um, Rather, it was in the middle of the countryside, and people would have had to go there uh, for festivals, uh, probably at the solstices and maybe at other times of year. This archetype is found in every religious tradition, and it's all over the world. I lived in India for seven years where I worked in an international agricultural institute. There's a tremendous amount of pilgrimage in India. There are pilgrimages uh, among Muslims. Uh, In India, many Muslims go to the shrines of Sufi saints on pilgrimages called dagas. And of course, uh, one of the pillars of Islam is to make a pilgrimage to Mecca if you can. Jewish people go on pilgrimages to Jerusalem and in the middle ages the whole of europe was crisscrossed with pilgrimage routes here in england by far the most famous was the pilgrimage to the shrine of saint thomas beckett in canterbury cathedral and chaucer's book the canterbury tales uh, one of the first books in recognizable english um, it tell is about stories the pilgrims told each other on their journey to canterbury and it said it was written around 1390 Um, Another great place of pilgrimage in England was the Shrine of Our Lady at Walsingham, the Black Madonna of Walsingham. The way in which this happened was that people went on these journeys. They stayed in monasteries on the way. The monasteries provided the infrastructure, the places to sleep and get food for pilgrims on their journey. But this came to an end in England and in other parts of Northern Europe through the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant reformers didn't like pilgrimage. They thought they were too Catholic. Um, And also the Puritans were worried that uh, people were having too much of a nice time on pilgrimages. They were fun. Um, uh, They complained about irregular sexual activity and so forth. Um, So uh, uh, there was a, a desire to suppress them in many Protestant countries, and that happened in England in 1538 with Thomas Cromwell's injunction against pilgrimage and at the same time uh, as part of the reformation here in England the monasteries were uh, privatized Uh, the monks were driven out um, some were executed um, some were just pensioned off and the monasteries were closed down all over England and that destroyed the infrastructure for pilgrimage Uh, similar things happened in in northern Germany and in Scandinavia in the Lutheran uh, Protestant countries of Scandinavia. Well, this suppression of pilgrimage, I think left a kind of vacuum in the soul of English people, um, which uh, was filled or replaced by a secularized version of pilgrimage a few generations later under the name of tourism. The English invented tourism, um, you know, first with the Grand Tour, on the continent which rich young men went on. Um, And this involved visiting the great sacred places among other things like the ruins of ancient Rome and Greece, St. Peter's in Rome, um, the great cathedrals of uh, Europe, and so on. So tourism uh, then spread and and became more and more uh, widespread in in the uh, world. Um, Until it's now, or at least until recently, until the COVID lockdown was a multi-billion dollar industry all over the world. And what do tourists go to do? Well, they usually go to see ancient sacred places. Um, Tourists to London visit Westminster Abbey and St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, uh, Tourists uh, to Cologne go to see the cathedral. Uh, Tourists to Rome go to the Vatican and St. Peter's. Tourists to Egypt go to the ancient Egyptian temples. Tourists to India go to the great temples and great mosques and uh, great um, religious tombs like the Taj Mahal. So, <clears throat> But when they get there, tourists can't say a prayer or connect with the holy place uh, or light a candle or do a puja if it's an Indian temple uh, because they're not Um, pilgrims they've gone as tourists in a secular spirit Uh, they have to pretend that they're modern enlightened rational non-superstitious people and they're primarily there because of an interest in art history well most of them aren't that interested in art history and the guides that spring up to tell them facts and figures um, are usually uh, the, the, the information goes in one ear and out another so They're really, uh, I think, best seen as frustrated pilgrims. Uh, Tourism is a kind of frustrated pilgrimage. And I think one of the things that is going on now is a reversal of this uh, shift from pilgrimage to tourism uh, back from tourism to pilgrimage. Um, And it's much more satisfying. Uh, People who visit holy places as pilgrims Connect with the place, connect with the tradition of the place. They can ask for a blessing uh, in, in their pilgrimage. Pilgrimage involves going with an intention um, to give thanks, uh, to pray for something, to ask for some blessing, to ask for healing, as pilgrims to Lourdes in France do. Um, so this is uh, something where you do it with an intention. It's not just going to it to work out to take a few photos and learn about when it was built. It's connecting with the spirit of that place um, and making an offering. One of the things I learned in India is that Indian pilgrims who've been doing this for a very very long time don't just walk straight into a holy place. If they're visiting a temple for example they walk round it first, they circumambulate it clockwise usually. and then they go in and by walking around it you make it the center i find this is a very helpful thing doing pilgrimages here in britain uh, when i get to a holy place like a cathedral i walk round it before i go in um, it makes it the center it makes the visit much more powerful to do that simple centering thing first then when you visit a holy place uh, making an offering is traditional you bring something to give hindus take garlands of flowers or coconuts as offerings for pujas Um, in cathedrals and things then you can make a donation i mean it's very fitting to help maintain these buildings visiting the holy place with the intention saying a prayer lighting a candle if it's a cathedral or a church um, or doing a puja if it's a temple um, it connects you with the place, and then you can pray there for um, ask, even if you're not used to praying. You can ask whatever powers may be there, whatever the holy powers of that place are, uh, for help, for guidance, for inspiration, for healing, or for whatever you'd like to ask. And even if you don't know quite how it might work, it's worth doing. You lose nothing but by doing it, and in my experience, um, it can be a very uh, powerful, inspiring, and rewarding thing to do. I myself, when I visit um, new towns or cities, um, try and find where the central sacred place is. In India, it's usually a temple. Um, in Islamic countries, it's usually a mosque. In Christian, traditionally Christian countries, it's usually a church or a cathedral. And so I then go to the sacred center, um, make an offering, donation. In a Hindu temple I take flowers. Um, a Buddhist temple you can take lotus flowers. Uh, make an offering. And then give thanks for being there. And I always ask for my visit to that place to be blessed, for the place itself to be blessed, for the people I meet there to be blessed, and for the blessings to go back with me Uh, home uh, so they can be shared with my family and my friends. If you don't receive a blessing when you go on a pilgrimage, you can't share it with others. One of the things I loved about these pilgrimages in India is that when Hindus go on pilgrimages, uh, they offer prasad, which is like sweets um, which are blessed, and then they bring them back and they share them with uh, members of their family. So When my colleagues used to go from my research institute on pilgrimages, they'd come back and they'd give me some of the prasad they would brought from the temple so that I'd share in the blessings of that journey. I thought that was an absolutely lovely thing to do. And to uh, Whereas if you go as a tourist, all you can do is take photos and not everyone's that keen on watching, looking at other people's holiday snaps. Um, Whereas sharing a blessing is something that uh, very few people turn down a blessing, even if they think it doesn't work, it might work, they don't lose anything uh, by um, accepting a blessing. I think one of the things about these holy places that's so appealing is the fact they have a long history of pilgrimage. especially with temples and cathedrals and um, ancient buildings or places like stone circles or long barrows um, the uh, they'd be places where people have prayed and worshipped and had mystical experiences over long periods of time and i think we when we visit them we as it were tap into that memory we connect with the memory of the place my Scientific hypothesis of morphic resonance is a theory that says there's memory in nature. The laws of nature are more like habits. There's a collective memory in each species. If you train rats to learn a new trick in London, then rats in New York and Melbourne, Australia, and New Delhi should be able to learn the same trick quicker just because the rats have learned it here. That's the hypothesis of morphic resonance, which I describe in detail in my book, The Presence of the Past. that gives the idea that there's a, a kind of collective memory uh, brought about by similarity. You enter into resonance on the basis of similarity. So when you enter a sacred place like the great temple of Madurai in South India, or Lincoln cathedral here in England, um, you're exposed to the same visual stimuli as other people have been there. It looks the same, you're seeing the same, Building, it's the same visual impressions are coming into your eyes, the same smells into your nose, the same sounds um, uh, that other people have experienced in that building. And I think that puts you in touch with them through morphic resonance, through a kind of collective memory of what's happened in that place. And in uh, holy places, what's happened is usually inspiring, uplifting, calming, uh, and opening up to a larger dimension. Now there can be negative memories in places and whenever you hear stories of haunted houses you usually hear um, of some terrible thing that's happened there. Uh, Some people say that battlefields, old battlefields, are particularly unpleasant in their atmosphere. There's a kind of negative memory in some places but holy places principally uh, have inspiring, uplifting and positive effects Uh, because that's how they've been seen and experienced by so many people uh, before. Many of them are places where heaven and earth are believed to connect, where there's a bridge, a link between heaven and earth. This is expressed by the vertical nature of many sacred sites. In ancient Egypt uh, they had obelisks um, which are uh, single stones standing up uh, shaped with a kind of pyramid shape at the tip. These are in a sense a refined version of megaliths uh, which are found all over Europe and the Middle East and in other parts of the world. Standing stones, um, often not so finely wrought as the obelisks, often rather crude, but standing stones um, uh, stand up as the name implies, linking the heavens and the earth. And then when you get to the stage at which people built structures uh, then you have towers and spires and minarets. These are characteristic of holy places, these structures that link the heavens and the earth. Even holy places, natural ones like wells or caves, are places that link heaven and earth. The cave links the daylight and the outside world to the depths and the darkness of the earth, the well uh, with the water down in the earth in the darkness of the earth links the earth to the sky. And you can see the sky, if you look down into a holy well, if it's one that's open to the sky, the sky reflected in the well, it, as it were, takes the light down into the earth. Well these vertical structures, um, which have always been seen as links between heaven and earth. Um, uh, are symbolic links, of course. Uh, one of the stories in the Old Testament is of Jacob. Jacob is traveling in the Holy Land. He goes to sleep uh, beside standing stones at Bethel, a place where there are ancient standing stones. Um, and he has a dream of angels ascending and descending, linking the heaven and the earth. When he wakes up in the morning, He says, truly, this is a holy place, um, none other than the house of God, and the story in the Bible says he erects a standing stone uh, as uh, a a sign of that link between heaven and earth. But as I say, Bethel was a place with standing stones anyway, and it seems to me uh, much more likely that um, he slept beside an ancient standing stone and had this vision, and then Uh, that re-consecrated the stone uh, as something that became sacred to Jewish people uh, as it had been to the previous inhabitants of the land who put the stones there in the first place. Well, the links are not simply symbolic though. Um, Tall structures tend to attract lightning and that's why church towers and spires have lightning conductors. And why minarets have lightning conductors. So I think they're literally places uh, which connect heaven and earth. And lightning is much more cosmic than most people realize. I was brought up at school told that lightning was caused by a kind of friction between clouds and the earth. It's a local phenomenon between clouds and, and the earth over you know a few thousand feet. Um, but it now turns out that the electricity that's coming down through lightning uh, a lot of it is coming through the solar wind and through cosmic rays they're coming from uh, the the sky from the electrically charged uh, bodies in the sky like the sun when the sun is very active when there are solar flares when there's a great deal of solar activity um, then the frequency of lightning strikes on earth increases Uh, there are actual um, lightning discharges from the ionosphere down to clouds through what are called sprites, which have often been seen by pilots of jet planes or commercial airliners um, who are flying in that zone. Um, And so the the Northern and Southern lights also increase. So these lightning strikes involve a, a direct connection between the heaven and the earth. The power of the heavens actually literally, not just symbolically, coming into the earth. I think that these are are all reasons why holy places have the power they do and why people are drawn to them as pilgrims or if they've been secularized, uh, if the people have been secularized as tourists, they're still attracted to them. In fact, they're called tourist attractions um, because they have a kind of power through their history uh, and through their linkage of heaven and earth that can affect us all. And of course, the way it affects us depends on our own understanding and our own openness. If we're not open to these things, it may not have very much effect. If we open ourselves by preparing for our visit, um, by going with an intention as a pilgrim, um, then uh, it may have more effect. So I'd end just by saying, if you haven't been on a pilgrimage yourself yet, um, try it out um even if you only do a very local one uh, to a local sacred place a church a mosque a temple um, walk there go with an intention uh, make a prayer when you get there or make an offer and make an offering if it's a church or a cathedral light a candle um, and you can find out um, about sacred places in Britain by going to the British Pilgrimage Trust website which is called britishpilgrimage.org and there are now hundreds of routes one day routes two three day routes 19 day routes um, whatever length of route you want to go on and with the longer pilgrimages you can do segments you don't have to do it all at once as most people uh, uh, do with Santiago not not everyone does it all in one go Um, so i think this is something that's fun to do it's it's uh, connecting when you're walking say to a cathedral you started a village near the cathedral city um, and usually from the village church and then you're going through fields you're connecting with nature you're connecting with heritage you're connecting with the land and i think personally think that pilgrimage is not only of enormous value for those of us who've being born and grown up here in England, but also for people who've uh, come to live here as immigrants uh, for one reason or another. Um, Most immigrants don't connect very well with the land. If you go on walks in the countryside, you see very few people from immigrant backgrounds. Um, uh, Immigrants are usually in cities or towns. Um, But to connect with the land of Britain, um, the best way is to go on a pilgrimage And pilgrimage is open to all. Everyone's welcome at these places. You don't have to be signed up to any particular religion. These are open to anyone, uh, whatever their belief system uh, of all faiths and none. And so personally, I greatly welcome this revival of pilgrimage and hope that this movement um, continues to grow and helps to enrich people's lives. It's also very eco-friendly, much more eco-friendly to walk. Uh, to a holy place in your own country uh, than to fly to the other side of the world to visit some other holy place from another culture, which you don't even properly relate to if you're going as a tourist. So uh, do give it a go if you haven't tried it yet. Thanks for listening to Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.